We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service before the sermon, three passages were read from the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, and Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www. And in this series, we've seen that the heart of Christianity is something called the kingdom of God. And trying to understand Christianity without having some sense of the kingdom of God, it's kind of like trying to swim without water. I mean, you know, the two just go together and, and they're incomprehensible apart from one another. In fact, when you take Christianity apart from this notion of the kingdom of God, what it does is it kind of frees it up so that you can then do whatever you want to with it. But when we locate Christianity within this broader concept of the kingdom of God, well then we begin to come to grips with what makes it what it is. This is the heart of Christianity. It's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And and tonight we're going to talk about the church. The church as the embodiment of the kingdom of God. Now, before we do that, though, we do need to take a minute to review and to just kind of remind ourselves of what the kingdom of God is. Now, to do that, we need to recognize that the Bible is is really one story. It's one single, unified story. It's it's huge. It's sprawling. Uh, You know, it's like a a fern. I mean, it, it kind of reaches out over here and reaches out over here. But it is a single, unified story. A true story. And as Christians, we would profess that it is the only true story of the world. And it begins with God creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It starts with God creating the universe. And it's it's God's kingdom, this universe. He's the king, he's the creator, and he makes everything, and he reigns and rules over everything. And it's good. He made it that way. In fact, in the very first chapter of the Bible, seven times God looks at what he says and says, hey, that's pretty good. I like what I did. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly beautiful. It reflects his design. It's full of diversity and it's full of harmony. It's sort of like a symphony with all of these incredible different pieces singing together in a unified whole. And and there's this kind of exquisite peace between all of the parts, between humans and their creator, there's peace. And between humans and the creation, there's peace. And between people and other people, there's peace and wholeness. And it's filled with beauty and joy. But a catastrophe occurs. Adam and Eve assert their autonomy against the Creator. And the consequence is universal. Immediately we see that we've been cut off 
from our good beginning, and we're in the middle of a mess. The entrance of sin into God's perfect world, His kingdom, is calamitous. It wounds the world. And then all of those three relationships I talked about earlier, the relationship between humans and their creator and humans and the creation, those three relationships immediately get twisted and broken as you're reading through the storyline. There was once peace between humans and God. Now that's broken. There was peace between humans and each other. And the first thing that occurs after Adam and Eve take of the fruit is there's murder. And then immediately the ground becomes problematic and there's thorns and thistles. Now, God is still the king in principle. But in sin, we reject his kingship and we erect an enclave of rebellion. And Satan, the usurper, asserts his power and claims kingship. But God takes the initiative. He turns his attention to one man, Abram. This is the passage that Allison read to us. When God called out to Abram and entered into a a very deep and very particular relationship with him. And this is part of the sweep of the story. In this moment, God enters into this relationship with Abram and he commits himself not just to Abram but to his descendants, which ends up being the people of Israel. Now, why does God do this? Well, five times in the passage that Allison read to us, some form or another of the word blessing is used. Why does God single out Abram and enter into this unique relationship with him? Because God says, through you, Abram, I'm going to restore wholeness to the entire kingdom, the entire universe. Now, part of this relationship between God and Abra, later, later on became Abraham and then the people of Israel, part of this relationship involved God giving Israel some land. He promised the land to them, so we call it today. Does anybody know? The promised land. He promises them this land, but over time, Israel refuses to submit to God's rule, to the king's rule. And so God disciplines and judges them, and part of this judgment involves Israel being held captive by other nations. So over the course of time, God begins to show them that one day he's going to act in a decisive way to reestablish his rule through them over all things. And at the heart of this promise, this is a long stretch of history that I'm summing up, but at the heart of this promise, God says he's sending a special agent who will have a crucial role in the way that God brings about his kingship, once again, over the whole creation. So when John the Baptist appears on the scene, he speaks in in a context that is absolutely chuck full of the expectancy of this special agent. The Jewish people are longing for God to send this special agent to reassert God's rule. They're tired of being captives of whether it's the Assyrians or the Persians or at this moment when when John is there, the, the Romans. And then Jesus shows up 
and he announces that special agent that you've been promised for centuries, it's me. It's Jesus Christ. And he begins a ministry that eventually leads to his death and resurrection. And his earliest followers, their message was this. In Jesus Christ, the reign and rule of the one creator king of the universe has re-entered the storyline. Let me say that again because that's hugely controversial. That in Jesus in a Jew walking around 2,000 years ago, the one creator God of the universe has decisively entered into history and inaugurated the reign of the king. Now that was what his first followers claimed. That was what Jesus claimed. And this remains to today to be one of the most debated and contested proposals that has ever entered the history of world religions. And the issues that are at stake behind this are of huge consequence for mankind. Now, from the outset, Jesus evoked a response that ran the gamut from hostility and angry opposition through indifference and confusion and bewilderment all the way to the other end of joyful gratitude and wholehearted commitment. I mean, when Jesus announced that the king had entered the scene, all of these reactions happened around him. But the claim of Jesus and his followers remains that in Jesus, the dynamic rule and reign of the king has entered and appeared in this world. And when you when you read the biographies of Jesus, you see that both his teachings and his actions, they are saturated by this notion of the rule of God appearing in history. In Jesus, God has dramatically moved to inaugurate his universal rule. That is why Mark 1.15 that we've looked at over the past two Two weeks, both times. That's why Jesus begins his ministry with this statement. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That was what Jesus stepped onto the scene saying. He's saying these promises for centuries and centuries in me, they are all fulfilled. Now Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God returning to this world his exorcisms, and his healings, they all show what life looks like under the rule and reign of God. When the usurper has been removed from the scene and the rightful king is in place. Now, like I said a couple of weeks ago, these miracles, these healings where Jesus healed people, whether they were blind or or what have you, and these exorcisms, they're not just an example of God showing sympathy for hurting people. They are instances of the rule and reign of God breaking in to the brokenness of Satan's kingdom. They're victories in the battle that Jesus was waging against the forces of evil and death. 
And ultimately, it's in His death and resurrection when He gains the decisive victory and then He ascends to heaven and is installed as the King of the universe. Now, when we tell that story and we announce this reality, it demands that everyone respond. And indifference is a response. Either we respond by acquiescing and yielding to the king, or by our indifference or by our hostility, we reject the king. It still demands a response. And we saw last week how the Holy Spirit works in our life to wake us up to the truth of this story and how we can be born into God's kingdom and that it involves a journey of responses, of believing in the story, of repenting of the fact that we've lived like the rightful king is not on his throne. We've lived as if we were on the throne or some other power or what have you. That, that entering into the kingdom is about learning to trust in the king, to trust that he really does forgive us for whatever awful thing we've ever done, and to commit our lives in total allegiance to Jesus and, and to be baptized and, re- and to receive the Holy Spirit and to be received and drawn into to the community called the church. Now, those things we talked about last week, this is how people move into the kingdom. Now, but what I want you to see is this. I just walk through the whole storyline of the Bible. And what's critical for us to see is that behind the entire sweep of the Bible is the idea that the Creator is King. And that this notion of the kingdom lies at the heart of Scripture. And that through the life and deeds Through the message of Jesus, God has once again sat on the throne. Now, I'm not saying that God was was ever not king, but there's this principle in law, this idea that something can be true in principle but not in fact. That God has always been king in principle, but when Satan usurped, or when Christ came back, he's now once again king, in fact. Now, that's how far we've gotten the last couple of weeks, but tonight we're going to turn our attention to the role of the church in that grand story. And the reason I've done this review is because you are guaranteed to misunderstand the nature and purpose of church if you do not understand it in the context of the kingdom of God. It really boils down to this. The church, no matter how many people that makes up, whether it's 20,000 or two, the church embodies the kingdom of God. And this is what we would call in philosophy an ontological reality. That's not a wishful statement. That is an objective fact. The church embodies the kingdom of God. It's not merely some sort of religious layer that we add to our social life. I'm making a statement about what this is as fact. 
It is a reality that this church, all things new, is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. It's not a layer on our social life, and it's not a club for religious people. The church is a community formed by God in response to the preaching of the kingdom. Now, this is our challenge for tonight. It's to come to grips with that. It's to hear the truth about the church, about its nature and its purpose. So what do we learn when we locate the church within the context of the kingdom? What does it mean to say that the church embodies the kingdom of God? Well, it means two things primarily. And we discover these in the passage that John read to us from Matthew's gospel and that Wendy read to us from the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at these two passages and unpack this notion of the church as the embodiment of the kingdom. First, from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. Ephesians chapter 3. If you need to use your table of contents, there's no shame in that. Um, I'll tell you it's to the right, though, by the maps. Now, in this passage that Wendy read to us, we learn that Paul is in prison because he's a Christian. And from prison, he's writing a letter to various churches around the city of Ephesus. And he reminds them of the miracle that they represent. Look at verse 4. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Then in verse 5, he continues by saying what this mystery is. He says, This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. No, remember what I said early. The Bible is a single Story. It's sprawling, it's capacious, but it is one single story. So here's Paul writing a letter saying, look, we've got a part of this story. And what is the part of the story that was a mystery to people earlier in the story, but now these guys have the privilege of seeing it? Well, look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, a Gentile was just a Jewish word for a non-Jew. So there's Jews, and then there's everybody else, okay? So this mystery is that the non-Jews are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is saying, look, the big mystery that, that nobody, even in their wildest dreams, could wrap their minds around is that you do not have to become a Jew in order to be related to the king. All along, the secret plan of God was universal. We saw hints of this in the passage Allison read, where he says, Through you I will bless all nations, all peoples will be blessed. For non-Jews to be on equal terms with Jews, this is what Paul is doing flips over. And he says, look, God has accomplished this miracle through the Jewish Messiah. Now, you try to find any other monotheistic religion that de-emphasizes ethnicity, and you're not going to find one. 
Because monotheism has always the belief in one God, right? When we start talking about a plurality of gods, like the Romans did when they were being syncretistic, when they were capturing the world and trying to keep everybody in one big happy tent by, oh yeah, bring your God too, bring your God too. They didn't, they had these kind of various competing ethnicities. But anytime you go and start looking at the the great monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Other than Christianity, monotheism's great problem as far as the philosophy of religion is that it gets rooted in a single ethnic group. So in order to become that religion, you have to all of a sudden lose your ethnic identity and take on that particular religion's ethnic identity. In Islam, you're really only truly blessed if you read the Quran, not in a translation, but in its original language. See, this is the great ethnic emphasis. It's kind of like hearing that the family down the street has come into a large and wealthy inheritance, and then you're told that you've been added to the family free of charge. No, we don't have to check your birth records, and you immediately get all of the privileges of any other member of the family. This is what Paul is saying to the Gentiles. He's saying, you just got a free ticket into the family's inheritance. That's the situation that the Christian Gentiles find themselves in. That God has promised His people, Israel, they will inherit the world when He renews the whole creation and now the non-Jews are part of that family. Now look at verse 7. Of this gospel, that word gospel means of this good news, I was made a minister. Now drop down to verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul was intimately aware of his own failings. This grace was given to me. He's saying, holy cow, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. This was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ there is is actually a word for the Jewish Messiah. I get to preach to non-Jews the unsearchable riches of the one true God that gave himself to Israel and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So this was God's plan all along, but it was only fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Now we're ready for the most powerful statement in all of the Bible about the reason the church exists. If you write in your Bible, you should underline verse 10. If you don't write in your Bible, lean over to your neighbor or get a pew Bible and write in that, underline it in. This is the most powerful statement in all of the Bible about the reason the church exists. Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now look closely at that verse. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. In other words, the church is an object lesson of the wisdom of God. The church is now the embodiment of God's wisdom. The church is a huge billboard a model, a living, breathing example of God's plan all along the way. This idea that people of all nations 
can embrace the one true God and not lose their ethnic identity. Here's a new way of living. Jew and Gentile under one roof in one family. The reconciliation between Jews and non-Jews, it is a token, just a token, just a fraction of what God is up to with everyone and everything in the universe. Do you understand how much of a miracle it is to bring peace between Jews and non-Jews? And Paul is writing to some non-Jews in a church with some Jews and saying, look at you. You're an embodiment of how beautiful God's wisdom is. You're the picture of it. The church is God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe in the future. That's the mystery of God's will. Everything is going to be brought back to the way it was in Genesis 1 when it was good, when it was in harmony, and there was peace. This is what it looks like when the rightful king reigns. Now that's the first thing it means to say that the church is the embodiment of the kingdom, the reign and rule of God. It means we're a sign. We're just a little taste, a foretaste of what God is up to for the whole universe. The church is a sign, billboard. It's a display of the big plan. Now in Ephesians, we see how God's kingdom overcomes pride and ethnocentricity to shatter the barriers of ethnic prejudice. Now that's a lot of power, isn't it? Let me give you another example of how the church has represented to the world what the kingdom of God looks like. In the year 165 AD, 165 years after Christ, okay, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians believe that it was the first instance of smallpox in the West. And any time a disease like that, uh, an epidemic like that, hits a culture for the first time, it's particularly devastating. But whatever the actual disease was, it's, it, it was lethal. In fact, we know from historical documents that it lasted 15 years. And the best we can tell is that about one out of every three people in the Roman Empire, died. So you just count through this room, right? One, two, three. <laughs> One, two. <laughs> One, two. <laughs> then 79 years later, a second epidemic hit. And it was equally devastating. Now, some medical historians think this time it was measles. In cities that were stinking of death, the mortality rate was so high that the emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, he wrote this, caravans of carts and wagons are hauling the dead through our streets out of the city every day. Now, when the second epidemic hit and was at its height, 5,000 people per day were dying in the city of Rome. 
And the death toll in the rural areas, we learned from a lot of kind of burial sites and all, it seems that it was even higher. Thucydides was one of the most famous of the ancient historians, and he described the extremely contagious nature of these two epidemics. He said that as a result of how contagious they were, people were afraid to visit one another. Remember when we had a pandemic recently of bird flu and people stopped going to Mexico? Okay, now multiply this times 15 years, one out of every three people. You can imagine. Thucydides wrote this, and I quote, They died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants of the house perished because of lack of attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped, one on top of the other in the streets. And half-dead creatures could be seen staggering around in the streets or flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The pagan temples in which they took up their quarters were full of the dead bodies of people who had died inside of them. For the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men not knowing what would happen next to them, became indifferent to the rule of religion or law. No fear of God and no fear of law had a restraining influence. Now, in the city of Alexandria, the great city of Alexandria, evidence suggests that two out of every three people were killed. The Christian bishop of Alexandria, during the second plague, His name was Dionysius. He wrote a letter to his flock in the middle of the plague. And he said this, Other people would not think this a time for festival, but far from being a time for distress, this is a time of unimaginable joy. And he goes on in his letter to say that the non-Christians are terrified, but the Christians, they were treating the epidemic like school, a time of testing. And later in the letter, Dionysius indicates that this is a time when all faiths are called to the bar. He said, but Christianity offers Three things. This is me summing up his letter. An explanation for the plague, comfort for the suffering, but the most powerful thing that blows me away when I read Dionysius, he says it offers a prescription for how Christians should act. To love one another and and that this love Christians have. Think about Ephesus. It extends beyond family bonds. And it extends beyond, extends beyond tribes. And he insisted in his letter to all of the churches in Alexandria that Jesus' command to visit the sick, feed the hungry, and give water to the thirsty must be interpreted literally. He insisted... Uh, this is me reading directly, okay? From Dionysius' letter written at Easter in the year 260 A.D., the second plague. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. 
heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Now, a century later, the Roman emperor Julian launched a campaign of terror against Christians and he brutally tortured and murdered Christians. And his goal was to restore Rome that had at this point tilted to Christianity. His goal was to restore it to Roman paganism. That's the official title for their religion. And so he wrote a letter to the high priest, the pagan high priest of Galatia. And he wrote this high priest and he said, this is a quote from his letter, the pagans, no, that's not a pejorative term, that's their technical religion. He said, our religion needs to equal the virtues of Christians. Recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character and their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. And then in a letter to another priest, Julian wrote, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by our priest, the Christians observed this neglect and devoted themselves to benevolence. He didn't believe it was honestly motivated. And he also wrote, The Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. This is what Paul meant when he said that the church is the manifold wisdom of God that is now being made known. The church embodies life the way it's meant to be. Loving life. The good life. Beautiful and true life. Real living under the gracious rule of the Creator King. And that's one thing we learn when we look at at the nature of the church in the context of the kingdom. That it's not some extra religious layer we add on to our social life. It's not a club. That it's not just some external support for my own individualistic kind of religious life. That that Christianity is the embodiment. The church is the embodiment of the rule and reign of God. But there's one more thing. To say that the church embodies the kingdom is also to say, not only that we are a sign, a billboard, we show the world what life looks like, lived under the gracious rule of the benevolent creator, it's also to say that the church is the agent or the instrument of the kingdom. This is Matthew 16. This is what Allison read to us. Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And listen, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
In other words, Jesus doesn't say anything about what a single solitary Christian can do with regard to Satan's pernicious influence. But he said when it comes to the church, the gates of hell will crumble before it. And, and he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. In other words, the church is the instrument of the kingdom of God conquering the kingdom of Satan. Now, this passage is thick, and there's a whole lot of arguments among Catholics and Protestants about what are the keys, and who's Peter, and am I supposed to have a pope, and all this other kind of stuff. But what we all agree on, okay, what Eastern Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and Roman Catholics and Protestants, what we all agree on is this. In the church and through the church, God is removing the usurper. The church is the agent of the kingdom. If you have a Bible, go with me to one last passage, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. Okay? So in other words, here's the early church, and uh, they share. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And finally, verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Three verses, okay? Think of them like a sandwich. Two pieces of bread with, I don't know, what's bologna, okay, or whatever. So, okay, so the two outside verses, they describe this, both of them, they, they're parallel. They both describe the same phenomenon. They describe this incredible miracle of people loving each other more than they love their stuff, all right? And then the center verse, the bologna, describes the power and grace that accompanied them when they talked about the kingdom of God. So maybe if there's a lack of power when we're talking about the kingdom, maybe it's because of the way we're not living out the kingdom as a body. Do you see that? That when Luke is describing the power of their words, he sandwiches it with the miracle of the way they live the kingdom. In other words, if you want to talk about the kingdom with power, it has to be in the context of a local group of people that are embodying that kingdom. What we learn is that when the church shows the world God's reign in a tangible social form, when we live not as a gathering of people to some religious club, but when we, all things new, live as a distinctive community in the way we relate to one another, when we are an outpost of the kingdom, then we become an actual instrument of the kingdom, an actual tool that God uses to establish His reign and rule to restore all things. We're seeing this happen right now in our own day when, when we look at the genocide in Rwanda. 
1994, nearly one million Tutsis were killed by Hutus in a hundred days. The most efficient genocide in the history of the world. One in every eight Rwandans were brutally hacked to death by machetes. It was the... Our president didn't even call a a meeting of his inner staff to address the issue. France supplied the machetes. The plan had been in place since the 1950s. The UN peacekeeping force that was there was yelling out to the world it was happening, and they were restricted to 100 soldiers at the height of this. The head of that peacekeeping force is a Canadian. Today, he's an alcoholic. He says he, his body's in Canada, but his soul cannot leave Rwanda in what he saw. And in the midst of all of this, the church is leading the way to reconciliation. If you're one of the perpetrators, of the, one of the people who hacked somebody to death, and you're in prison... The church is leading the way of of getting the government to let those people out of prison if they would confess their crimes to the surviving family members of the people they brutally massacred. And if there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation. And it's changing the face of Rwanda. We don't have time to go into all of this. All I'm trying to say is that there are examples around the world of when the church takes serious, embodying the kingdom, how God then takes the church and uses it as an instrument to extend his kingdom. So, let me wrap up with this. How will we embody the kingdom of God? All things new. We have no genocide in front of us. And we have no plague in front of us. What are the broken places in our community? This is, this is what it means to be a church. In what way will we stand to face the full effects of our fallen condition and be as a church assigned to this community of the kingdom of God? If we were living in downtown Birmingham, it would be easy to see the opportunities, wouldn't it? I mean, they're in dilapidated buildings and a broken education system. They're everywhere. And so it's easy from Christians over the mountain, it's easy for us to get in our cars and to drive to other communities and embody the kingdom of God there. But we are called to be his witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We are called first to be his witnesses in our community. And we live over the mountain. We must discover all things new if we are going to be the church, true to our nature, true to our purpose, then we must discover how it is that we can embody the kingdom here. Each congregation is nothing less than the local reality of the kingdom of God. Those of us who sense that God has called us to this church, do you realize this is not a voluntary joining of an organization? 
To be called to a church is to be drawn by the Spirit of God into a community whose job it is to embody the kingdom of God in that community. We saw what this looked like in Ephesus with their racial barriers being overcome by the local church. And we saw what it looked like in Acts 4 with the economic barriers being overcome by the local church. And we've seen how it looked in the second and third centuries when the church embodied the kingdom in the face of a ravaging epidemic. And there's Rwanda, where the church embraces her identity as the community of the forgiven. And so they live out of that and they extend radical, costly forgiveness. And in doing that, they become a billboard of the kingdom of God and an instrument for God's kingdom advancing. And it's always easier, always easier to go somewhere else and to work for the kingdom. It's always easier to do that than it is to ask how we can move more squarely into the realm of God's reign right here in our own neighborhood. This is our challenge as a church. It's to ask in what practical and tangible ways is God's Spirit leading us to embody the kingdom of God? And it's not to wait around until we get a certain... How big do you have to be to be the, embody the kingdom of God? You just need two. Because wherever there's me and you, there's going to be brokenness, right? That's all you need. Because this is... See, look... The church gets its identity not from itself, whether it's big or small, or this stripe or this hue, but from the kingdom of God and what God is doing in the face of brokenness. That's our calling. It's not to wait around until we're something else. It's to be the kingdom of God here and now in Vestavia and Homewood and Liberty Park and Mountain Brook. I don't know the answer to this question, by the way. I, I, I'm not going to tell you because I... I'm in a loss. But I'm excited about the fact that we get to go on this journey together. That those of us who are part of this church, this is what God is calling us to. He's going to show us brokenness. And then he's going to buy his incredibly creative spirit. Now think, God is so creative. I mean, could you make billions of people and none of them look the same, right? I mean, could you do it? Could you make trees and none of them look exactly the same, right? Could, could you do it? God is so creative, He made James. He's going to creatively lead us. We're not Rwanda. We're, we're not living in Alexandria. We're not Ephesus. We're an over-the-mountain group of people. And God's going to lead us. And our job is to embody the kingdom here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, sometimes it astounds us to say that we, that all things new, is a local manifestation of the wisdom of God. Holy cow, that, that boggles my mind. As a member of this church, Father, as a pastor of this church, we commit ourselves to you and your kingdom.
Lead us by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.